Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 27, The Conquest of Samaria and Israel. Paying the tribute of a thousand silver talents to keep Assyria on friendly terms required Menahem to get creative. After all, Israel's coffers weren't what they used to be. Either that or he simply didn't want to dip into state funds, so he imposed a one-time tax on every household. Fifty shekels ought to do it, worth a little over a pound of silver. At the current modern spot price of silver, that's about 245 US dollars. But so what? The poor can't afford it, and the wealthy don't want to. This relationship with the Assyrians was becoming a severe burden, costing them much but not really seeing anything in exchange. Anti-Assyrian anger spreads, which eventually leads to the first open revolt. The city of Tapua, located on the fringes of the Israelite kingdom, had declared their independence and shut their gates. One city located on the frontier wasn't going to make a difference, yet Menahem chose to make an example here that all might know his character. Once he had breached their defenses, it is written that he smote the city, and all the women therein that were with child he ripped open. His time with the Assyrians, it would seem, was starting to rub off on him. Although while something this cruel might work for that empire, Menahem found the opposite effect with the Israelites. Overwhelmingly despised for his deeds, he felt there was enough of a threat to his person that he even hired Assyrian soldiers to protect him, which didn't exactly help from a PR point of view. Menahem's death in 737 meant his son was next in line, and just two years into his reign is assassinated by Pekah one of his chief officers and leader of an anti-Assyrian faction. Pekah reaches out to the kings of Damascus and Tyre to put aside their past grievances and join together against the real danger here, Assyria. He also reaches out to Ahaz, the current king of Judah, to join this freedom force, but Ahaz has no intention of picking a fight against the Assyrian juggernaut. Oh, but rejection isn't an option here. You're either with them or against them. And to reinforce this, the armies of Israel and Damascus marched to take over Jerusalem and bring Judah in by force. Not good for Ahaz, but rather than prepare his defenses and fight, he quickly sends envoys to Tiglath-Pileser promising Judah's vassalage in exchange for protection, even writing, I am your servant and your son. The Assyrian king gladly agrees and unleashes his warriors. As he would write, Rizin of Damascus, with the blood of his warriors, I died a reddish hue the river. That one, in order to save his life, fled alone and entered the gate of his city like a mongoose. I impaled alive his chief ministers, and I made his country behold them. I confined him like a bird in a cage. Damascus is destroyed, and all its territory annexed as an Assyrian province. Israel survives, relatively unscathed, but an angry mob supported by Ahaz captures Pekah and has him lynched. His replacement king is Hoshea in 730 BC, a friend to Ahaz and the leader of that mob. He does away with the silly notion of resisting Assyria and reassures them of his loyalty by paying the tribute again. Probably a wise decision, too, because in 727 the new Assyrian king, Shalmaneser V, marches to Tyre, and commences a five-year-long siege of the city. It's a little nerve-wracking that his army is so close to Israel's borders, but on the bright side, if it's taking him that long to conquer one city, well, maybe they're not as strong as they used to be. 
With that thought, Hoshea does a complete 180 and decides there will be no more tributes to Assyria. Immediately after this, he sends messengers down to Egypt, inquiring if the pharaoh would be willing to ride out for war. The plan to pit two giants against one another is a sound one, but this never materializes. Somehow or another, Shalmaneser learned of Hoshea's treachery, and upon seizing Tyre, pointed the Assyrian army towards the Israelite capital of Samaria. Hoshea had gambled and lost. Israel was poor, weak, and politically feeble. It might be for these reasons that instead of the normal graphic, boisterous gloating other Assyrian kings write about, this is all that was recorded of Shalmaneser's war in Israel. He ravaged Samaria. Not mentioned is that it took him three years to do this, and before that he had even summoned Hoshea to his court demanding an answer for his impudence. The Israelite king does not return home. He's arrested and imprisoned, his fate unknown, but pretty much implied. Shalmaneser doesn't do much more in Israel because he dies in 722, being succeeded by... No, not his son. This man is of an unknown origin. It could be a royal, maybe a military leader, no one's really sure. What is known is that when he became king, he takes a new name in emulation of the kind of ruler he wants to be, which is Sargon, aka the legitimate king. His Akkadian counterpart wouldn't have left a land only partially conquered, and neither would he. The Israelites wouldn't go down without a fight, though, and even while Sargon was preoccupied fighting Philistines and Egyptians, the Israelites continued their revolt. But this couldn't last forever. In 721 BC, Israel finally fell to the Assyrian king. He records what befell the capital Samaria. The Samarians, with a king hostile to me, consorted not to do service and not to bring tribute, and they did battle. In the strength of the great gods, my lords, I clashed with them. 27,290 people with their chariots and the gods they trust, as spoil I counted. 200 chariots, as my royal muster I mustered from among them. The rest of them I caused to take their dwelling in the midst of Assyria. The city of Samaria I restored, and greater than before I caused it to become. People of lands conquered by my two hands I brought within it. My officer as prefect I placed, and together with the people of Assyria I counted them. Nearly the entire population of Samaria and Israel is deported, sent to the farthest and least populated regions of the Assyrian Empire. This event is considered the origin of the ten lost tribes, where all but Judah and Benjamin were exiled from the Promised Land. Although the Levites had already fled to Judah when Jeroboam took over, and not to mention the numerous refugees that would have surely fled south too, including the fact that in the second book of Chronicles, it states that the tribes of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulon were spared by the Assyrians. Whew, it's probably best not to think too hard about it. Regardless, this massive expulsion happened, a harsh punishment for insubordination. That said, Sargon isn't going to leave the land barren. New citizens from the empire are brought in to form a new Assyrian province named Samarina. With such a diverse background, these settlers brought their native gods and traditions with them, intermingling with each other and the indigenous peoples there. It's from here that we see the origins of the Samaritan people, the first Jewish sect. Nowadays, the word Samaritan typically has good preceding it, referring to a parable in the New Testament of how a Samaritan helped a total stranger who had been beaten and robbed. 
The modern usage describes an altruistic individual, but for most of history, these people were despised by the Israelites and Judeans, treated as half-breeds, pagan worshippers, and child sacrificers. Naturally, they believe their Yahweh worship is really the purest, and it's the religion of Judah that's corrupt. But honestly, the differences between Judaism and the Samaritans have become fewer as time progressed. They have a different holy site, Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem, a different set of Ten Commandments, and go by their own Torah. They're also prohibited from marrying anyone outside of the Samaritan nation, which has become a significant modern problem. Over the centuries, they've seen their numbers decimated by the Byzantines and lost to conversion from either Christians or Muslims. As of 2014, their census reported 750 Samaritans remaining, and with such a tiny gene pool comes the prevalence of hereditary diseases. While the solution proposed is still considered controversial in their community, but they're allowing men to marry Ukrainian women for a DNA refresher. As their high priest was quoted, We're hoping our numbers will reach 10,000 in 10 years. Hey, mazel tov, guys. Back with Sargon, he celebrates his victories by constructing a new capital for himself, farther north of Asher. The city of Dur-Sharukin, which literally translates as the Fortress of Sargon, is built less as a stronghold and more as a jewel in the desert, with large gardens and massive Lamassu bull statues. He actually takes a prominent role designing it, instead of simply assigning people while he goes off to play. And while he's a warrior through and through, he's just as fearsome as an architect. Contacting an Assyrian governor for supplies, he writes, The king's word to the governor of Kalhu. 700 bales of straw, and 700 bundles of reed, each bundle more than a donkey can carry, must arrive in Dur-Sharukin by the first of the month. Should one single day pass by, you will die. Now that's motivation. While the palace was being built, Sargon completed his conquest of the Levant by annexing the Philistine cities and taking his army into Cyprus, subduing the local Greek and Phoenician inhabitants there. Despite the fact that Judah was an easy target, he left them alone. After all, they had paid the tribute, and therefore would be spared his wrath. Come 706 BC, Sargon would move into his new city and enjoy its splendor for a whole year, before falling in battle with the Sumerians. His conquest of Israel seems to stick out compared to the other kingdoms of the Levant, since Sargon had essentially wiped them off the map. Sure, other regions got it bad too, but he left them intact, and its people beaten, not uprooted. Phoenicia was always lightly punished, probably because their nautical skills were so valuable. And not to mention the Philistines, although perhaps they were to act as a buffer state with Egypt. Still, the fall of Samaria meant things were never going to be the same, especially for Judah, thinking they're safe and secure just buying off would-be invaders. No doubt the refugees flooding in from Israel brought horror stories of Assyrian soldiers piling up severed heads, creating human shish kebabs and other gruesome acts. The kingdom of Judah has weathered the storm as best it could, but its outlook was grim. The affluence that once blessed Solomon had long since run out, and those friendly relations with Assyria relied on a generous tribute. Should the people start pushing for an anti-Assyrian rebellion, that could be the end of Judah. Of course, if the king could actually reach out to Egypt without getting caught this time, maybe things could work out. Or, going out on a stretch here, convincing the Babylonians. They've really had it in for the Assyrians ever since the two had a falling out, and if they could overthrow them, Judah could be saved. Although I guess that would just be trading one empire for another. Well, one of them is bound to work out. Maybe.
Oh, everything's coming to a head as three superpowers clash with Tiny Judah caught in the middle on the podcast history of our world.